0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm Mike White. On this episode, you're going to hear from author Glenn Kenny. He wrote a book recently all about Goodfellas. It is called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. If you're a fan of this film like I am, you're definitely going to want to pick this up. It is a wonderful read and tells you all kinds of stuff you never knew about Goodfellas.
1: Now go home and get your fucking shine box.
0: Tell me about yourself and and how you got into writing and writing about film. It's been quite a long time. I've been, uh, you know,
1: I turned 61 this year and uh, I've been writing since I was a professional. I've been uh, doing this since my early to mid-20s. I started out as a music critic. I was a rock critic i got my professional breaks at a magazine called musician and then i moved from there to the village voice where i worked with the uh, well known and well respected uh, writer and editor robert kriskow who really taught me a lot and uh, gave me a sort of semi regular slot in their music review section uh, of the paper and at the time the voice was a uh, really very well known as a writers paper and so um, that became my entree to other places people were uh, you were considered pretty legit and not only legit, but pretty interesting if you had bylines of the voice. So I started working a couple of years later, a uh, full-time job that I got because of my voice connection at a magazine called video review. And that's when I started writing about films more. And it was during my tenure at that magazine that I met Martin Scorsese for the first time. And it was in the winter of, uh, of 1989 when he was editing Goodfellas. I'd gone to his office to collaborate with him on a essay you know, he was just sort of getting started in his now fairly well-known efforts uh, at film preservation. I thought it would be interesting for my magazine's 10th anniversary issue to solicit him to contribute his thoughts about home video, home theater, physical media in relation to film preservation. He was very happy to do that. So I met him there for the first time. And, of course, he was in this, the very legendary New York uh, building, the Brill Building, which was well-known as uh, – that's kind of a uh, center of uh, of songwriting and, and music, way back in the day, the offices of many music publishers were there in the '60s and '50s. And you saw people like Carol King, Jerry Goffin, uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, Al Cooper in that, if if not in the uh, building itself, then in that neighborhood. Al Cooper has written about the other Building nearby in his own memoir, which is really fantastic. So it was a significant showbiz location, but eventually started housing offices for film. Uh, Broadway Video, the company that Lauren Michaels started with Paul Simon, was located there. So Scorsese had a kind of a loft-like office space. It wasn't very grand. It was it was roomy, but it wasn't very grand or uh, or, or well-appointed. But in the building was also the editing suites for uh, what he was working on for Goodfellas. He had also edited uh, last temptation of christ in this building so he was kind of going you know back and forth from one floor to another uh editing uh with his editor thelma schoonmacher and uh you know coming back up the office to talk to me so he was excited about the movie and i was excited to hear about it i was a scorsese fan already i had uh, always uh enjoyed his pictures from a very young age I remember going to see mean streets with a friend of mine when we were about 13 and from the very beginning of that film when they go into be my baby and they're showing the home movies on the, uh, on the, on the small screen from an 8-millimeter uh, projector. You know, and there's scenes of Little Italy and Italian-American life. I'm partially Italian-American myself. My buddy and I kind of look at each other and we're like, well, this guy gets it, you know. So we followed his work. When Scorsese discussed with me his enthusiasm for Goodfellas, which was then called Wise Guy, after the book that Nick Coleggi wrote uh, and on which the film is based, it was very infectious. Faber and Faber in London had just published a book called Scorsese on Scorsese, which is kind of a book-length interview about his career moving up to the pre-production of Goodfellas. I brought that book with me, and he signed it uh, with thanks and appreciation, which was uh, meant a lot to me. And the, the year after that, I, I saw the film when it came out, and it was uh, as exciting for me as, uh, as Scorsese had described it. So in a way, coming around 30 years later to write a book about that film – it's kind of serendipitous. Became serendipitous for me. It wasn't a project that um, you know I'd been waiting 30 years to do. But when the 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 stars, such as they were, aligned to allow me to do it, and then I started researching it, I began to get this feeling that it was a book that I was uh, well suited to write, if not out and out meant to write. Having achieved that, it's a real.
0: Um, it feels it feels pretty great to have done that and to have people enjoy the book as they seem to be doing. What were those stars that aligned for you? How did this come about?
1: After working at Premiere, I uh, did some free, did freelance writing. I, I worked a little while for uh, Stereo Review. And then, uh, you know, I got a job at Premiere. I was an editor. I worked with David Foster Wallace on uh, his uh, now-legendary essay on uh, David Lynch. And then I became the critic for the magazine. I'm actually going over my old reviews and... Uh, they're kind of more, you know, because uh, some uh, an entrepreneur on the web is uh, going to uh, try and uh, put the uh, content of much of the content of Premiere beginning with my reviews between 1999 and 2007. is going to try and put them online uh, and I'm uh, kind of formatting them right now. I'm looking at my old reviews starting in 1999 and I mean, it's mortifying. I mean, I don't think they're bad and I understand why people like them, but they're very arrogant they 're very swaggery, um, which is not the kind of writing I like to do as much now uh, they 're very confident and they're very uh, very sheep and the hipish that's what happens when you 're a writer. you kind of learn and grow and you change hopefully um, I, I was writing pieces and you know I was re- relatively reasonably well known in my in my field and uh, I'd been uh, kind of interested in uh, writing a book had you know worked with one literary agent and didn't really yield much. You know, I mean, publishing nowadays. I mean, when people ask you, I always feel bad when people ask, "How did you come to write this book?" Because it feels like the expectation is you you want your 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 it's it's desirous that you give a sort of romantic answer about inspiration and uh, you know um, and 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 passion and things like that. And, and yeah, those are all components of that. But it's also you know publishing is a business, and uh, it's a business that's more I think more narrow than it used to be. So a lot of it has to do with finding the right finding the marketable idea at the right time has everything to do with and, and finding the right person to pitch it to is everything. That's why agents are important. Uh you know, I, I, I found uh my current agent, Joseph Veltry, uh and, you know, we would kick around ideas. You know, I had a couple of ideas, some of them film related, some of them not film related. And we spent years, you know, Honing those ideas and pitching them and getting very polite and very respectful uh, rejections. You know, this book's too grim. This book's not grim enough. I mean, you learn a lot and how everything has to be just fine-tuned in such a way that uh, that someone will bite and put up the money for the book. For a previous literary agent, I had done a proposal about uh, the Brian De Palma film, Scarface. Which was not, I mean, it's a movie I like and respect, but not a movie that I feel particularly passionate about. My previous agent felt passionately about it. So we put together uh, a proposal, and we got nowhere with it. Uh, And then with my current agent, he thought, you know, doing something similar with Goodfellas was would be a good idea. And Goodfellas was a movie that I had warmed to considerably. So we put that together, and that didn't get anywhere, in part because at the time, 2014, a making of book that I won't name got published and it was a good book, but it kind of flopped in a in a rather spectacular way. So the atmosphere for making of movie books all of a sudden became very thin. You know, in publishing everything changes. And my my publisher my agent founded a an editor at a house who was starting to get interested in books like that. So uh in two thousand eighteen he asked me to dust off the proposal and send it to this editor. And we had a lot of good conversations. I went and did a sample chapter for him, which is not my favorite thing to do because writing this kind of project takes time and effort. And, you know, if you're not making money doing it, it's costing you money. Writing a sample chapter for a book costs you money. And he decided that my approach was not narrative enough it was too analytical he was concerned about the gq magazine oral history of goodfellas which he thought covered all the bases so he passed on that so i felt pretty crummy about that but i said to my agent we have this proposal that's you know current and up to date let's shop it around and it found its way to my editor and now my friend peter joseph at hanover square press who did bring it up to his staff at a meeting and everybody got very excited and started trading dialogue from the movie with each other and they felt all right this is a project we want and if i got it done in a year you know or so then i they could publish it in time to coincide with the 30th anniversary of the film that's what i mean about this the stars aligning it was an opportune that's an opportune marketing hook so then that's when the deal came together and i got uh, an advance and i began to be able to start working on the book in earnest And it was an interesting process because I, you know, arranged it in my head that it was going to go in a very orderly fashion, you know, that I would spend the spring and summer of 2019 doing interviews. And then once those interviews were done, I would have all the interviews done. And I would then spend the fall and winter of 2019 and early 2020 actually doing the writing. And during the summer of 2019, I was like, I seem to have a lot of time to go to the pool these days. I'm getting interviews, but I'm not getting as many as I want or need, and I'm going to need to like accelerate that. And then I'm going to need I'm just going to need to start I have to do everything all at once. I have to start writing and I have to continue pushing for interviews, and that's going to be the process of doing the book. And that's what it ended up being. And in that process, the last interview I did for the book was my interview with Martin Scorsese on March 9th. 2020, five days, uh, six days before my manuscript was due, and about three days, four days before the entire city of New York shut down. So that gave the whole process a very exciting kind of uh, uh, race to the finish line uh, aspect. What can you do? Do you do the best thing you can do? And that actually turned out, you know, it, it creates a very good dramatic coda for the book to have this very intense conversation with Scorsese at the very end. It's almost like brackets because the book begins now with um, with my first meeting with Scorsese and it ends with a 2020 interview with Scorsese.
0: You talked about writing sample chapters. I can't imagine writing a sample chapter on something like this when you do put so much research into every single gosh, almost every single paragraph seems like you've had to talk to somebody or dig up an article just to get this information.
1: It occurred to me when I was, you know, when it had been determined to do the sample chapter, and I didn't end up writing the book in sequence, obviously. But uh, it occurred to me that, you know, I knew that I wanted, I knew I wanted two things. And I had already written the prologue, which was my first meeting with Scorsese in 89. So I thought, well, Obviously, I can't talk to Henry Hill because he's dead, but I want to start at the beginning of how Goodfellas came to be a thing. So, of course, that beginning is Nicholas Pelleggi, the writer who wrote the book Wise Guy, which is the book on which uh, Goodfellas was based. And, you know, Pelleggi is in his late 80s. Now, when you meet Nick Pelleggi, he doesn't seem at all like someone in his late 80s. He's in great shape. He's sharp as a tack. He seems like someone in his mid-50s, early 60s tops, and I hope that continues to be the case for the next 20 years, um, and he's a great guy, and he's one of the great American crime writers. But I thought, well, I should probably talk to the guy in his late 80s right off the bat. And so I uh, was able to uh, get his email. He was very cordial. Um, we had lunch at a place near his uh, apartment in Manhattan, and he, uh, he actually paid, which was very nice. I was prepared to pay, but he insisted on paying because that's the kind of person he is. And he was incredibly generous with his time and with his anecdotes and with his whole story of how he came to know Henry Hill, how his wife, Nora Ephron, the screenwriter and director, came to know Henry Hill, and how he came to know Martin Scorsese and work with him on not one but two huge projects, uh, Goodfellas and then later on Casino. And he's actually working on a script for Scorsese right now, or he was at the time I interviewed him in the October of 2018, a script about um, Scorsese's own life in the, um, on the Lower East Side as a boy, Scorsese's Amacord, as Nick put it. Who knows if that'll get made, but it should. A very wonderful collaboration and definitely friendship. So um, so that was a great lunch, and it was just a great kind of way to kick off the book, and I was able to get a really, essentially the, the chapter called Nick and Nora and Others is essentially, that's, that's pretty much the sample chapter verbatim. Uh, that's it. So that turned out to be a nice way of starting. But the other stuff was done non-chronologically, because it had to be.
0: I'm so glad that you brought up My Blue Heaven, because I had a friend who used to say all the time, oh yeah, it's the sequel to Goodfellas, even though it came out first. And I was just like, get out of here. And I had no idea that there was that connection. I never put those things together.
1: Yeah, I thought it was funny that it came out a month before Goodfellas. But yeah, it was hilarious. It was just one of those things where, um, and it seemed to me very self evident. Why, you know, if you follow film at all, how do you not make that connection? And he was delighted to talk about it. He remembers Nora very fondly. She seems like, you know, a great companion to him. But when he talks about her, he talks about it with this great fondness, but it's also not at all maudlin. So, you know, he's a guy, he's, he's just a very, you know, he's a very, I mean, there's a weird thing to say about a guy who's 87 years old, but he's a very mature person. He, he's comfortable in his own skin. He knows who he is and he knows what he's doing with his life right now. And he's, uh, he's good with that. And so it makes him good company. You can see why someone like Henry Hill, who was very insecure, uh, among other things, trusted him and leaned on him and, often tried to get him involved with his uh, increasingly harebrained money-making schemes. His life as a as a celebrity with a price on his head uh, continued through the 90s.
0: I remember Henry Hill always calling in to Howard Stern, and he just came across as the most manic, strange guy that I've ever heard. As he
1: became more of an alcohol, you know, as his alcoholism got worse, he just became more and more frantic, and he'd call up Stern to sort of vent and also be, you know, as a kind of confessional. Uh, Howard's book, Coming Clean, was very useful to me when I was uh, writing about the later years of Henry Hill's life and the transcripts of his conversations with Henry, which are very sad. And then, of course, I spoke to Ed McDonald, Edward McDonald, the prosecutor, who got Henry Hill into witness protection, and was another person who Henry Hill sort of would say, you know, you're my best friend, you're the only friend I have, things like that. Edward's recollection is, you know, was affectionate, but he's like, you know, Henry was Henry was a schmuck. And he talked about like um the times that Henry would come to New York and try and have dinner with him and be completely inappropriately blitzed and almost getting thrown out of Smith and Walensky's. And I asked him, you know, well, did did Henry Hill feel bad about his crimes? Because on the commentary for the um twenty fifth anniversary Blu ray of Goodfellas, there's uh there's two commentary tracks. There's one featuring some of the producers and actors and then there's another where it's just Edward and Henry Hill and it's fascinating because Henry Hill is, is being very fulsome in talking about Ed McDonald he's saying this man saved my life if it hadn't been for him I'd be a dead man so and, he, and then he's like oh, I just feel so bad I feel so bad we killed Billy Batson it, it's it's a little too much you know and I asked uh, Edward, Ed McDonald you know, do you think Henry was sincere in terms of that remorse that he expressed and Edward said, no, not really, no. The thing, and someone else said the thing that hurt him the most, his brother, Joe Hill said to me, the thing that hurt him the most, the thing that made him feel bad, the guilt that fueled his alcoholism was not guilt over participating in murders or robberies or any such thing. It was guilt about ratting out his buddies, Jimmy uh, Burke and Paulie Avaria. That was his guilt, that he saved his own skin by ratting out like two people who were super important to him. You know, these character traits of these people involved in this movie, this is what made the book interesting to write, too, was, you know, I love writing about film, and I love writing about film production, and I love writing about film technique. But just as important for me and just as exciting for me was writing about these human beings whose lives were affected by this film, by this book, by the process of making the film. Some people, you know, reveal themselves to me in ways that they hadn't done before. Barbara Dufina, one of Scorsese's ex-wives and a producer on the film, you know, kind of broke her silence about the way she feels that she was ill-treated by Scorsese and producer Erwin Winkler and all the male characters at CAA in the 90s. She just kind of comes out and lays it on the table and um, she may write a book of her own someday. But that aspect of it, getting people to talk about how this film and how their involvement as filmmakers with other filmmakers change their lives is just as interesting in some respects, even more so.
0: That interview with her is gold. And it feels like you've talked to so many people. I'm curious, do you have any idea how many people you actually interviewed for this?
1: Honestly, it's not as many as it seems, but it was, you know, in the area of 30, there were some people I really wanted to get and that I didn't get, including Ray Liotta, who was very uh, elusive. At first his publicist was uh, relatively cooperative and there was a shot when he came to New York. Uh you know, and I would have gone out to LA to talk to him if I needed to. But he can't came, he came to New York to do marriage story and his uh, for the New York Film Festival and his publicist said, Well you might, you know, let's get you something at this time and then he he was he said, Well, he's just in and out of town so we can't do that and I just kept checking in with him and eventually I just he just stopped answering my emails. And that was that. And then I found out that he was represented by the same agency as I am. So my agent went to his agent, and his agent asked, and his agent came back and said to my agent, the cryptic uh, phrase, now's not a good time. I never found out what that meant. And then I found out a friend of mine, who's a film director, was actually going to make a film with him. It was going to be March, uh, early March. And I was considering kind of hitching out to the film location and seeing if I could uh sort of piggyback on, on on something to get access to him there, and I thought that wasn't such a good idea relative to my relationship with the filmmaker anyway. But then it became the point became moot because production on the film shut down for a while. So I never ended up getting an interview with him. Similarly I never talked to Lorraine Bracco, who was whose uh whose own manager was kind of committal, -committal, non-committal, etc. But in a way, it kind of made me look for different alternatives and talk to people who don't get spoken to, like the master Bob Griffin, or the first assistant director, Joe Reedy, who is a really vital contributor to the book. Uh, You know, the first assistant director, especially on a shoot as complex and challenging and interesting as Goodfellas, he's the guy who knows where all the bodies are buried, you know, and he's the guy who can walk you through uh, this process with great specificity and uh insight so and, and you know and again the people who are the a lot of the main players you know had talked about this film you know almost to death in interviews for example with the gq staff for the oral history so to get new voices in to get isaiah you know um isaiah woodlock uh in there to get Joe Reedy to get uh, Christy Zia, the production designer, uh, Bob Griffin, the prop master, all those people. That, to me, was bringing a new stress, bringing a new
0: kind of shift of, of perspective to looking at what was going on. And that, to me, was very welcome. You talked about the first time that you saw Goodfellas. And I'm curious, what was your relationship with the film over the years before you decided or before this Opportunity landed in your lap, where it's like, "Hey, this is actually going to happen."
1: You know, it was one of those movies that became part of the lexicon for myself and my my friends. We were uh, you have to think back in the day before Blu-rays and things like that, and uh, you know, it was a movie you'd, you'd go see in a theater three or four times during its first run because that's how exciting it was. And you started doing how my hey, you know, you start talking like the movie. It's a celebration, you know. Well, it wasn't so much, it wasn't so much, you know, go home and, you know, how am I funny? But we would say, my friends and I would say, you know, you insulted him just a little bit, you know, that sort of thing. So for us, it was like instant epiphany. You know, we loved the movie. It was it was part of our lexicon right away. Uh, and with that, with the rest of the world, it caught on a little slower. But it seemed like a year or so after the movie came out, every stand-up comedian had some kind of riff relative to Tommy uh, Joe Pesci's How Am I Funny bit. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, once The Sopranos started, people saw the affinities between The Sopranos and Goodfellas. And David Chase, the creator of the show, had not ever been shy about uh, admitting how much Goodfellas was an influence on him. Then the film became not ubiquitous, but, it, you know, you realize that in a stealth sort of way, after having had a modest commercial success, which Scorsese was able to build on and become kind of a major studio filmmaker for a period with stuff like Cape Fear and Casino, having gone from a a minor box office success, but to a major cultural touchstone. And all of a sudden you wake up one morning and it's like, everybody agrees, Goodfellas is the greatest gangster film of, of, you know, post-war history. So it's nice to be on the boat early. Unlike a lot of other films where you get this uh, sense of them not being appreciated in their time, and then eventually Suddenly, everybody loves them, and you feel kind of like a combination of being vindicated and a little annoyed that your thing is being taken away. With uh, Goodfellas, it never felt that much of a that obscure. That you know, once it once it was acknowledged as a great film, it is. It felt like you know uh, your your own your own secret handshake was uh,
0: was exposed to the world. How was it looking behind the curtain and seeing just how that sausage got made? It was interesting when I first started
1: writing the book. I had lunch with Jay Cox, who's a friend of Scorsese's, uh, and he's a friend of mine. We, our friendships don't inter in, in, interlap, uh, but we had you know there was during, before COVID made it impossible. We would have lunch with our friend, the film writer Farron Nemi, uh, almost once a month. And um, when I signed the contract to do the book about Goodfellas, I told Jay I was doing the book. And he said, well, are you sure there's a whole book in the making of the film? Because it was not a particularly difficult or dramatic shoot. You know, it went, it did go 10 days over budget, over schedule, but they stayed relatively within the budget. They needed a little extra to get the the music done. And there was a problem with the previews that was overcome once the film was seen in Venice. And then it became a rather big critical hit. And with the critical hit, followed relative box office success so throughout you don't get much of a sense of of drama it it, it wasn't a, a sort of epic go to the desert thing the way that last temptation of christ was you know so is there a whole book in this and i thought well i hope so because i just signed the contract but i think what i ended up doing was tying in a lot of other stuff that includes the cultural legacy of the film the reception of the film the film in the context of scorsese's films particularly after Goodfellas, not so much before, and putting all that in there. But in terms of how the sausage is made, it just made me, in the years that I've come to know filmmakers and I've been on film sets and I've watched the process, I understand the ways that filmmaking is both exciting and kind of boring because it's a lot of hurry up and wait. It's a lot of preparation. And if you're not 100% clued in as to what is being prepared and you're an observer, you just don't get it and it just seems like a lot of waiting around. So, you know, Woody Allen said that, uh, so the director of filmmaking, the process of filmmaking, is getting up early in the morning every day and waiting for the big white truck to arrive with its new set of problems and things you can't do and things you can't accomplish and ways you're going to have to make up for the idea that you have that you can't achieve. Writing about and researching this book is... Showed me when you're someone like Scorsese, who's worked very hard with a lot of the same people consistently over the years, particularly a figure like the then cinematographer Michael Balhaus, that there's this group of people who are very invested in helping you achieve your vision. So what was interesting for me was how much each person in the in the in in that team contributed specific things to that achievement of vision, and I think I. I touch upon that pretty explicitly when I'm talking about the uh, Steadicam shot into the COPA, how there were very specific contributions to that shot that came from Michael Ballhaus, the cinematographer, and then came from Joe Reedy, the first assistant director, and then came from Larry McConkie, the Steadicam operator, who has a very specific theory of how Steadicam shots should go, that they should have beats that function as almost subliminal cuts within the shot itself, and that's why you put this couple on the staircase making out because they give you a little a little pause, a little beat that kind of creates a feeling of a cut without cutting. Analyzing that scene and seeing exactly how uh it works and how again everybody contributes, everybody's important, but they're you know, the vision is very much an individual one. And that's kind of the paradox of, of filmmaking, particularly when you're making a film with a director with a very strong
0: assertive artistic personality. I love the story that you tell about Michael Balhaus and that he could calm down Scorsese when things didn't seem to be going uh Scorsese's way.
1: Yeah, well that's a tricky thing, you know. I mean, um Scorsese is, is a, a warm and voluble and uh kind uh person in many respects, but uh, you know, he's also very intense and he works very hard and he uh he can exhibit a certain temper. He's also very, he's, he, you know, it's interesting, Barbara Defino was talking about working with Sidney Lumet and working with Scorsese, and that Scorsese comes up in terms of his attitude initially as feeling like he has something more to prove than Sidney Lumet. And also, despite the fact that they're both very much prepared, Scorsese comes into the ring with a lot more self-doubt, uh, whereas Lumet is a little more overtly uh, confident and so the self-doubt that you, uh, that you experience as a film director can be crippling at some point. So Bauhaus, you know, and Bauhaus worked with Rainer Werner Fassbinder, the German director, who was way more, I mean, Scorsese, moody and all that stuff. But, you know, Fassbinder was, I hesitate to use the word maniac, but he could be very abusive, you know, very directly abusive and very strongly abusive and very shouty and just tantrumy. And, and almost a long periods of time. So, and that's what eventually, I think, led to, you know, Bauhaus not wanting to work with him anymore. You know, that certainly was a contributing factor. Uh, Scorsese's own moodiness is a lot less intense, but it's still there. But Bauhaus had learned over the years, uh, and I think it was also part of his personality to begin with. He is a very accommodating and, uh, generous and kind person. And he had learned this kind of diplomacy to just be able to say, trust me, I, I will make this work for you. And then trust me, I have made this work for you. You know, you need great technical ability, too, to make that
0: kind of promise and not be bluffing. So he kind of he kind of was the whole package in that way. Of all the things that you discovered writing this book, what was the most surprising for you?
1: Well, I was certainly surprised that Barbara defina had such strongly negative feelings about her time at, you know, while working with Scorsese. She was not, uh, I I speak in the book about uh, kind of her being written out of film history. I mean, she wasn't even written in, is the thing. But when she, when they did write, when she was mentioned, Scorsese was always, you know, highly complimentary of her abilities, and rightly so. You know, she came up with some very interesting solutions to some practical problems on Casino, That uh, made it more workable. But, um, you know, when they were asked initially about, well, you're going to work together even though you're divorced, and they were both like, well, yeah, it's fine. That was kind of their whole public pose. And I guess, you know, if you read the book, it wasn't fine. You know, eventually got to be not fine to the extent that she's not someone that Scorsese will discuss at all. Yeah, that was a little surprising. Another surprising thing was that the day they shot the Copa Steadicam shot, you know, you think that that shot took eight takes to get down, and it wasn't because anything went wrong during the several minutes of shooting that they did the main action. It was because Henny Youngman, the the then-famous comedian uh, stand-up one-liner guy, whose signature joke is, take my wife, please, and it's the first joke he delivers at the end of the shot when he comes on stage. He kept slubbing his line. So they needed to do that. They needed to do that seven or eight times, but more surprising is the fact that after having gotten that shot in the can, they did more work that day. It didn't take all day to do. They they had the interior of the COPA, which was a real club, for two days, so they needed to get more shots in there that day, evening and the next day. So they didn't call it a day after getting that shot. They kept going. And, you know, a lot of films, they'll shoot, like, you know, there's films, there's miniseries right now. A friend of mine is working on a miniseries right now, and he's like, they shoot, you know, Three pages a day. The Coppa shot is, as conceived in the mind of Scorsese, it's about three pages, you know. But they kept shooting, so you know, that's surprising. I mean, they were these aren't these aren't sets where there's a lot of downtime. As with something like After Hours, uh, Scorsese liked doing that film. He said because all I had to do was make the film. All I had to do was make the film. If I was sitting down in my trailer, I knew there was something wrong because the way the whole thing was set up. During the hours of shooting, I'm shooting. So I think that was the case for Goodfellas too. They're not shooting; over they're traveling from one location to the other. Making a film is work. It's playful work, and sometimes certainly, but it is work, and you know you need a lot of energy. And Scorsese, you know, in his 70s now, and uh, you know, when he was in his 40s and 50s, he would question whether or not he'd ever be allowed to make another film again. He felt like every film he did was such a knockdown drag out fight to get his the way he wanted it that, you know, he never knew if he'd be allowed to make another one. And now I think his feeling is, do I have the energy to do another one? And that's why he needs a lot of money and a long shoot time to do it because for himself, for an actor of De Niro's age, you have to marshal your energy and you have to, have to be able to rest while you're doing it. And if he can't do that now, he can't make a film. Whereas Goodfellas, I don't think they they, ever—they didn't really ever stop.
0: I love that story that you tell about uh, Alana Douglas screwing up the one take and the way that Scorsese kind of covered for her and didn't put the blame on her publicly. I really appreciated that.
1: I think I think he would have done that even if they hadn't been personally involved on the level they were involved, because he does have a lot of respect for actors and he does understand. Not only what they go through, but how their nerves work. Barbara Defina said, yeah, I, he loves actors. She didn't say this, so I don't want to misquote her. But talking about the way Scorsese treats actors, you almost got the impression she thought that he's too nice to actors. You know, that he almost coddles them. But that's commendable. In my book, actors deserve to be coddled. They, bear, they suffer. And Welker White, I think it is another one. She talks about the incredible attention he gives to there, are, you know, like there are no small roles in a Scorsese film. When he talks to Welker White or Isaiah Whitlock, he tells them special things about what they need to be doing. He gives, he lets them bring their own props. He lets them make these determinations, specific determinations relative to the character that will make them comfortable in their work. So uh, I think that's wholly admirable in that it's a way that every Every director should work. Some directors aren't, you know, are great directors and they love actors, but they don't get that intimacy or, or level of handling,
0: let's say. So what are you working on now? I'm working on resting.
1: No, um, I have a couple of ideas. They're not all film-related. I might want to do a book about a band. I might want to do a book about Times Square history, or I might want to do another book about movies, maybe the book being one about the production code and how once the production code in America went down, how the old school directors like Hitchcock and Weiler and David Lean and Otto Preminger handled the new freedoms if they, you know, were their films improved by the lack of inhibition or did they go a little nuts? That seems like an interesting idea, but it's a little something I'm still cooking up. Um, And I, I do need to promote the book for the holiday push, you know, it, it's uh, it's done gratifyingly well, you know, in terms of its reception in September. But I do want to get it on more holiday gift guides. You know, in a couple of weeks, Obama's book is going to come out. And it's going to steamroll everything else in sight. So uh,
0: I want to I don't want to get steamrolled. That's it. I'm uh, just uh, hanging out. Well, Mr. Kenny, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful.
1: Well, I had a great time talking to you. Thank you for your insightful questions and thank you for your interest. I really appreciate it.